This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This might very well be a new era in Washington, but is this a new era that looks a lot like every other supposed new era in the history of Washington? Well, um, Kevin McCarthy, in what was the longest speaker's election since 1859, is promising that they're going to do all sorts of interesting things. They're going to crack down on uh, the border. They're going to deal with crime. They're going to change the way Washington does business. And uh, they're going to end wasteful spending. We'll end wasteful Washington spending. From now on, if a federal bureaucrat wants to spend it, they will come before us. To defend it. So it is interesting uh, that this is an incredibly narrow Republican majority. It's also interesting to see that one of the things that Republicans seem to be making such a priority is investigating some of the scandals or the pseudo scandals of the Biden administration. So where are we going for the next two years? What does government look like? What does politics look like? What does the Republican conference look like? Well, we have assembled uh, three former congressmen who've been there, who've seen the inside of the how the sausage-making process in D.C. is made. We've tried to represent all three aspects of the discussion and, and all three perspectives that are being heard in Washington these days. And I think we have... Two of the folks that uh, that uh, we were hoping to speak to with us now, and hopefully we'll uh, be joined by one in just a moment. Let me first welcome a former Democratic congressman from New York, the host of The Middle podcast and the Anthony Weiner show on uh, WABC, my colleague, Congressman Anthony Weiner. Congressman, how are you? Thanks so much for staying up late with us. Uh, good morning, Frank. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let me also welcome former Republican congressman from Florida and an MSNBC contributor, somebody that I think uh, can be described generally as a, a Trump critic, uh, David Jolly. Congressman Jolly, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good to be with you, Frank. I was loving the Mariano Rivera vibe. <laughs> well, as a Met I fan, it. I can't speak for Anthony, but as a Met <laughs> fan, uh, it's always Billy Wagner's theme song to me, not necessarily uh, Mariano Rivera. And uh, we're hoping to be joined uh, in a minute by uh, somebody on the rightward end of the political spectrum, former Congressman Tom Tancredo. We're going to try and get a hold of him in a second. But, uh, David, let me begin with you, uh, since you're, you're from Florida, a, a state which has also given us Matt Gates, who was sort of the ringleader of the anti-McCarthy rebels. Tell me, as someone that sat in the conference with many of the people on both sides of this issue, how do you see the next two years? Is there any way that this uh, intra-Republican party fight can be viewed as a positive, either for the party or for the country? Where do you see it going? 
one little glimmer, which I'll get to, but um, no, look, let's let's just lay bare here. Everything McCarthy said they're going to do, they're not going to do any of it because they only control the House and Democrats control the Senate and the White House. So what they are going to do on the legislative front is pass messaging bills to draw a contrast with Democrats going into 24. And, and that's good. That will inform voters, you know, are you with the Republicans or Democrats based on their stance on issues? Clearly, Republicans are taking a pretty hard conservative tact even in these first couple of days. So you'll see them on messaging bills. You will see them do investigations, and that's where they will primarily uh, spend a lot of their energy because they will see a return on their investment for spending their time on investigations. But the third thing they're going to have to do, and this is what ultimately will stress test the caucus, is they're going to have to keep the government open. Right. This is ultimately what sank Boehner and Ryan is at some point, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to work with Democrats. He's lying today if he says he's not going to have to to keep the government open, both for their annual budget process, the appropriations process, as well as not defaulting on the debt, which is a separate matter. He's going to have to work with Democrats and he's going to have to work with Democrats in the House. He's going to have to offer concessions or really get dragged along. To, the, to a solution by Chuck Schumer and by the Biden White House. And so the question is, can such a slim majority Republican caucus survive that stress test? I don't know that they can. I will tell you, the only way I think that they, they do is for Kevin McCarthy to pull an Elise Stefanik and just go hard freedom caucus, probably in, in the lane of the investigations that we discussed. And you kind of saw that this past week for him to gain the speakership he had to sell every every last piece of furniture and, and credibility he had to the hard right to be able to get to the speaker's gavel. And that's the only way he's going to be able to keep it is to stay in that hard right lane. Uh, Anthony Weiner, if people haven't heard uh, your most recent edition of your podcast, it's actually a must listen because uh, the the in-depth analysis that you provided in terms of the rules was incredibly helpful and incredibly informative. And uh, when you and I were chatting privately during this whole uh, discussion about the speaker vote, your insight really helped me to be a lot better informed. Uh, it's not as if the Democrats don't have some fissures within their own party conference, but those fissures seem a lot less visible now that the Republicans are in the majority. How do you see the next two years in terms of intra-Republican uh, work goings on in D.C., the relationship between the, uh, the House, uh, President Biden, and the relationship between the majority and the minority? Yeah, I, I think Congressman Jolly described it well, what's going to happen. And I think the best way for our listeners to understand it is there are really three parties kind of similar to what it was over 100-something years ago when there was a, a fissure in Congress over the issue of slavery. Now, there are Democrats who have stuff, broadly speaking, they want to get done. There is a center of gravity in the Republican Party who want to legislate and get some things done. But then there's this third element that kind of really is not in Washington for the purpose of trying to accomplish stuff. They're more there for stuff that they're against, the general nihilism about kind of stopping the bad people in Washington from doing the work that they want to do, et cetera. The fact that there are three of these parts means that really there's, there's probably not a governing coalition unless Speaker McCarthy and a substantial portion of the Republican Party, who you might describe as more moderate, although they're all pretty far to the right, says, you know what, we want to get certain things accomplished. Let's, let's pick an issue. Let's say immigration. We want to compromise and not try to come up with real solutions. 
I think that's when, what's going to wind up happening is you're going to see, as was previously described by Congressman Jelly, you're going to see a lot of stuff that would not, I would say, in, be in the category of actually legislating, as in passing bills that are passed by the Senate and then signed by the president. I think you'll see a lot of this investigation and stuff. And I think to get into punditry for a moment, those are the types of things that most kind of the middle of the road voters in America don't find very compelling. You know, if you take a look at the inflection point when things started to go a little better for Democrats, a little better for the president, it's when he started to rack up some wins during the summer. And, you know, just just yesterday, for the first time in forever, there was a, an approval poll taking of, 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 of President Biden where he was actually doing a little bit in the positive, a little bit more people approved than disapproved. I think it's because a lot of Americans watch what's going on in Congress and say, I don't want that kind of, you know, mud fighting. I would want to see stuff get done. So I think that, that Congressman Jolly's right. A lot of investigations, a lot of messaging bills. But if you think there are going to be a lot of signing ceremonies at the president's desk, I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, that's exactly my frustration. And I I consider myself one of these voters that's kind of in the middle. It drives me – I just sort of roll my eyes when uh, the Democrats are investigating Trump for the umpteenth time and the uh, Republicans want to uh, begin 9,000 investigations of anybody with the last name Biden. And I do wonder um, why there isn't uh, more of a a bipartisan consensus – in, in the House of folks that want to get something done. I would think there would be a uh, at least a plurality of Democrats and Republicans that are willing to work to deal with the must-pass legislation, stuff like the debt ceiling and everything like that, uh, but actually work on moving the ball forward rather than investigating whatever the party that's out of power is. I mean, David, uh, why isn't there emerging a uh, like a bipartisan yeah. conference of people that are that are eager to, eager to get stuff done instead of penalizing their political adversaries because of gerrymandering closed primaries and campaign finance laws that benefit incumbency in the big parties that's it i mean this is you get to do an entire show on electoral reform that pivots the incentives we have done that by the way yeah Yeah. well and so you as you well know once you change the incentives for political behavior you'll get to see different behaviors but right now you know, 400 of the 435 members on on both sides of the aisle are insulated by safe districts, and they just they just have to win a closed primary, which means you you've got to be there for your base, and there is no value in compromise. In fact, you end up getting penalized for compromise, which is why I think you'll see people move to investigations. And and to your point on this, though, this is interesting because we did see some data in 18 and 20 and 22 to the Democrats' benefit, but it it wasn't necessarily because Democrats were leading investigations. It was a bit because of the, you know, the, the Trumpism had gone too far. And what you saw in 18 and 20 and 22 is this group of voters you described, Frank, that just wanted to see things get done and probably get done in a little bit of common sense and compromise way on guns and education and finances and budget and so forth. And what you saw Democrats inherit, because I don't think they reached out to create this coalition. They inherited a coalition of their natural Democratic performing voters, independents who in 1820 and 22 began to perform more favorably towards Democrats as a rejection of Republicans, and then the disaffected Republicans, which was me. I was part of that coalition that Democrats led in 18 and 20 and 22 to benefit Democrats in Congress and throughout uh, electoral positions across the country. And and to your point, Frank, I think it's an affirmation 
that there's a heartbeat of America that actually just wants things to get done on the issues most critical to us. But Congress is not set up to behave in that way. Anthony, uh, there's been a lot made of this motion to vacate. And one of the concessions that uh, Speaker McCarthy made to the Freedom Caucus is that now, first, they reduced it to you only need five members of the House to call a vote to remove the Speaker. Now it's just one. Now, my understanding is that was the rule uh, previously. Why was that okay? Why did the House work and operate okay with that being the rule previously? And now a lot of people are saying this is an indication of uh, forthcoming chaos for the next two years. Well, it, it didn't. It was because of the presence of that rule that brought down two Republican speakers who at the time they were brought down were trying to do basically must-pass legislation, had the audacity to sit down with Republicans and with the president, with Democrats and with the president to try to get things done. And their caucus, well, I shouldn't say their caucus, a center of gravity in their caucus was the Tea Party types, the Freedom Caucus, call them what you will, um, saber-rattled sufficiently using that rule that speakers had to resign. I mean, you know, the, 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 there's, there's something to remember about this. It, it's there. You know, the rules are there to protect the, the minority as well. You know, ultimately, it's to make sure the majority gets their way, but it's also to protect the minority in, in some way. That means the rules can be used for great mischief. Now, the presumption is, oh, the other party is going to be doing the mischief. But getting back to what I said earlier, what if there is a part of the majority party that wants to cause mischief? That's why this 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 motion can be particularly problematic. You know, this may sound counterintuitive coming from a Democrat. I think it's important for the leaders of both parties to be strong, to be able to, in a in a rambunctious 435-member institution, in a difficult New York, United States Senate, to be able to sit down and do deals. You ask Congressman Jolly the question, what has to change? What ultimately has to change is the primaries, the fringes have to lose their primaries. And and the more mainstream compromising type candidates have to show that they can make those compromises and prevail. You know, uh, from, from Congressman Jolly's state, former President Marco Rubio will tell you that having the audacity to even sit down <laughs> and have a conversation about immigration um, leaves you as roadkill on the side of the road. And, you know, I, you know, on my show, The Middle, I'm, I'm, I commonly push off against the left and right. But this is a particular problem in the Republican Party because there is a bunch of them that they don't want anything. They just want you not to have anything. And that's a very difficult person to negotiate with. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry we uh, were not able to get a hold of uh, Tom Tancredo, because I have a feeling that if he was in Congress today, he would be very much with the uh, the Freedom Caucus folks and he might have a a different perspective. So we'll keep trying to get a hold of of him. But, David, uh, let me ask you about the status of this must pass legislation. Do you think there's a realistic possibility, for instance, that uh, Congress will fail to come up with a um, a measure to raise the debt ceiling in time? And then what are the implications of that financially, sure. politically? What happens? Yeah, I, I think there is a real possibility. What I will tell you is we've gotten to the brink on the debt ceiling or the, the default of our debt in the past. And we kind of know, to use the term stress test again, we know the evolution of the stress test. We'll get the Congress will get a notice from the administration, Department of Treasury, that they're having to use extraordinary measures. That's kind of the red flag saying, OK, team, time to get this done. Ultimately, it will get done because, frankly, 
corporate donors to the Republican Party will finally say, you got to stop rattling the world markets. So it, it will get done. Here's one of the things, though. Kevin McCarthy promised that it would only get done under certain conditions, and it will be a promise that he has to break. Similarly, though, on the annual budget process, that's where you get a government shutdown, very different than a debt default. I think you'll see a government shutdown. Republicans have fun these days with government shutdowns, so you'll see that. Now, why will you see both of those moments? It is because the slim majority of Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, just is not going to have the votes among the, his Republican caucus, but he's going to have to try to do it just with Republicans at first. And then secondly, and I'll play the role of Tancredo here, part of what he did in the rules package is he empowered backbenchers and middle benchers. And what Tancredo would tell you is that's a good thing. And I agree with that. Having, you know, I know Congressman Weiner was a backbencher at one point before he gained his seniority. I was a backbencher as well. Empowering more members to give voice to their constituents' concerns is a good thing for the body. The, the leadership can kind of choke off some of those independent voices. The question coming out of last week is really a qualitative one, which is, is it in this environment a good thing to empower backbenchers that depending on your view of the last the 2020 election and the theories of whether it was stolen, depending on your view of January 6th and the storming of the Capitol, depending on your view being espoused by these backbenchers on the Republican side, empowering them could be a good thing or it could be a very dangerous thing. And legislatively, what it means is you've empowered the people that actually are going to have a hand in shutting down the government. This wing of the party has moved from from less government to no government to now government's the enemy, and they're happy to shut down the government, which is why McCarthy ultimately is going to have to go to Hakeem Jeffries for some type of deal. Uh, we're going to continue with Anthony Weiner and David Jolly in just a bit. This is the other side of midnight. If time permits, we'll try and take some of your calls throughout the hour as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. soon be banned along with uh, gas-powered stoves. I'm not sure if that's covered in some of the proposals that have come out, but um, I do think that if you play a a song that's more electric-oriented, like Electric Avenue, we actually get a small rebate. So uh, be sure to tune in for that in the future. Talking about what's happening in Washington, not only what happened last week, but what the next two years 
are likely to uh, to look like. Uh, talking with former Republican congressman from Florida, MSNBC contributor uh, David Jolly, and uh, former Democratic congressman from New York, Anthony Weiner, the host of The Middle, and uh, a great podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Anthony, in terms of uh, where we go uh, from here, do you think that it's uh, likely that McCarthy will not complete his full term as speaker? We've talked about how the speakership has sort of been watered down. You've talked about the need to have strong party leaders in both the majority and the minority. Does McCarthy end up cobbling together and holding this coalition together for two years, though? Look, I, I don't I don't know. I think to some degree, I mean, early on, what he's showing is he's doing kind of the easy things. These investigations are relatively easy to do. You can have a hearing all you want. You can issue subpoenas. Those types of things seem to be intended to assuage his base. The rubber won't hit the road for a while. You know, the the one person who's cast a, a, a vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy's ability to get things done is Mitch McConnell in the Senate. You know, when the, when the House and Senate... Re- passed a 4,000-page spending bill for the entire federal government that takes us all the way to September. One of the questions that occurred to many of our listeners on WABC is why the heck would McConnell go along with that? It's because he felt that there was a very good chance that, that Kevin McCarthy could not put together even the basics of a budget in the next year with this with this group that he had. So I, I think that, 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 he, that McCarthy is going to have to stay away from anything – that's too controversial. You know, people don't understand some of the, 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 the that there are leadership fights all the time. I talk about this on the Middle Unplugged podcast that, that 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 dropped today. You know, the idea that people, you know, Nancy Pelosi was challenged by Harold Ford, challenged by Paul Ryan, uh, by um, uh, uh, what's what's the guy from Ohio, uh, uh, Tim Ryan, challenged by Kathleen Rice. Challenges to speakers they happen all the time. But what we learned in this process is there is a a bunch of members of the Republican caucus who don't mind at all really humiliating their speaker. If that's the dynamic, it's really hard to do your job as speaker. And then there was an element of the rules that got changed. And I don't know if you want to wait to go into this, but there is, an, there is a, at least a hint out there that, that McCarthy not only gave up this, this motion, to, um, motion vacate. to vacate the chair, but he also gave up seats on his most powerful tool, which is the Rules Committee. If he can't control what goes on on the floor and the Freedom Caucus has a veto on what actually makes it to the floor, you have to wonder if Kevin McCarthy will even try to do anything in the realm of legislating in the next couple of years. Uh, That actually was exactly the next thing I was going to ask is uh, there's been a lot of talk about the above board concessions, changes to the rules, like how long members are going to be able to review legislation before voting on them. Uh, You mentioned the motion to vacate, but there's also been a lot of allusions to, including by House Republicans, to these sort of secret concessions that we may not know the full nature of the deal. Uh, David Jolly, from what you're understanding, what are uh, the other concessions that these 20 uh, rebels actually got in exchange for supporting McCarthy? Yeah, so Frank, put me in the camp that that finds Kevin McCarthy to be one of the most untrustworthy individuals you can ever work with. I opposed him in 2015 when he tried to become speaker, and it was an alliance then that I created as a moderate. I shouldn't say I created. I was part of an alliance as a moderate with the Freedom Caucus to stop Kevin then, in large part over this question of trust and his unwillingness to actually move legislation. So 
what is in the deal, a lot of stuff that he's not going to honor as promises. What did not make the rules package that I think he has agreed to is first committee assignments. He says he, that he didn't agree to committee assignments, but the way assignments work is behind closed doors by something called the steering committee. The speaker has five votes, I think, and actually I believe he might even have six when you tally them all up, Scalise would have four and then other members three, two, and one. So not only does he have more votes on the steering committee to help influence assignments, but the speaker's position holds a lot of sway for the steering committee, right? Understand everybody wants to make the speaker happy. So he didn't have to write down, you know, Matt Gates, I will give you this assignment or, you know, member Smith, I'll give you this assignment. All he had to say is, look, behind closed doors and steering committee, I'm going to weigh in on your behalf. And then secondly, what I think he also gave away, which is becoming more and more obvious, is to unleash investigations that he previously would have dismissed, right? Just six months ago, he said, we don't need to impeach the, the, the DHS secretary. Now he says we need to. I think six months ago, he would have tried to hold back a move to impeach Joe Biden himself. But I think he's promised to let the House go ahead and move towards impeachment, regardless of where the facts come down. So it is in agreements like that where he has given away a lot. And this this goes to my reference to Elise Stefanik. The only pathway I see for Kevin McCarthy surviving, given the current dynamics of the caucus and the Republican Party, is to accept the reality that Elise accepted and become somebody that he has not been in the past but is a politician that's able to survive the next couple of years. Uh, talking with David Jolly and uh, Anthony Weiner, and I know we have a lot of conservative listeners uh, that uh, might be irked that we're having uh, either Anthony Weiner or David Jolly on, <laughs> let alone both at the same time. Let me tell you, folks, I, I worked hard to get a red meat eating conservative that would uh, be a- a- on the exact opposite end of this. So it was not for lack of trying, but just deal and uh, listen with an open mind. Uh, Anthony, in terms of the rules in terms of the concessions um what what do they what will they actually mean for how congress does business what's different about being a member of the house now as opposed to when you left uh you know 14 years ago or 15 years ago well i mean a, a better arc of time is when i arrived on capitol hill in the 80s as a staffer to my uh, uh, predecessor chuck schumer it was not uncommon to have all 12 appropriation bills taken up in what's called regular order, where members were, you know, the, these committees with their specialty, you know, looked hard at the line items that were in their responsibility. The entire federal government was divided up into those 12 committees. They would come to the floor. Members would offer amendments. Members would have things that they wanted to put in that were important to their districts. That that type of thing, I you know, I believe is a thing of the past, irrespective of any well-sounding um, rule change. I mean, it if you if you can just think of the problems that we had trying to get a speaker passed, think about trying to get, you know, just about every part of the federal government. If you want to, you can make it controversial and you can try to cut it because it has too much, or or vote against it because it has too much funding. I think it's very difficult that for any rule change per se to change the fundamentals of the of the logjam that we have over spending bills nowadays. Again, it, it returns to this idea that in order to have a negotiation, you have to have two sides that each want something, so they can everyone can get a little something to be able to to uh, to go back to their districts and say, listen, this is why I voted for this bill. 
The easiest vote is always to vote no on something. You can think of a thousand different reasons why to vote no on something. And right now, the center of gravity around no is a majority in Congress. And that's problematic. So I think while there are many rule changes that even Democrats have said, look, I think it's great to have a bill you can read for 72 hours. I think it's great to have appropriation bills done by regular order. I think these are great things to have. The practicalities of the partisanship that we have in Congress today, I think, are, are going to leave a lot of our listeners wondering why nothing seems to change. David, why do you think that when there was a narrow Democratic majority two years ago and similar calls from populists on the left to use the speaker's vote to enact some key concessions, whether it was votes on universal health care or changes to the rules or a bunch of other things? We didn't see this. We saw the Democrats vote uh, behind closed doors and then uh, almost all of them vote for Nancy Pelosi when it came time to do that. Why? the change? And do you think if there is a narrow Democratic majority two years or four years from now, sort of the squad wing of the Democratic Party will learn from the Freedom Caucus? It was interesting. I did take note that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spent a lot of time talking to people like Matt Gates and Paul Gosar. I'm wondering if uh, she was looking at this and uh, kind of seeing a playbook for what they can do in a couple of years. (laughs) Training ground, huh? So, look, I, you can't dismiss the difference in leadership style of speaker candidates, right? Nancy Pelosi ruled with an iron fist but a velvet glove. John Boehner kind of similar to that as well. Paul Ryan served as a speaker who was kind of your friend, and so there was a certain allegiance to him. He was like your brother. You didn't want to cross him. Kevin McCarthy, honestly, is seen as very transactional, as I mentioned uh, surrounded by questions of trust. And so part of the fracture was over that. I mean, consider how he kind of got rolled on a lot of concessions he said he would never agree to. He started out his negotiations saying, I'll never agree to those. Um, but you also saw the rest of the caucus, the 200 members with Kevin, kind of concede as well to the the other 20. I, I do think loosely there's something that should be considered, which is The diversity of the Democratic coalition right now is largely around ideology. Sure, there's questions about tactics, right? AOC might want to behave a little bit more like a Bernie Sanders. But essentially, you're talking about a diversity of ideologies in their coalition, which is easier to reconcile when it finally comes down to it. What we've seen in the Republican Party over the last 10 years is a coalition that is really fractured around their approach to governing, their view of governing. Do we just shut it all down? Do we blow it all up? Is compromise such a dirty word? Those are That's a harder coalition to keep together, and that was the fracture you saw. Right? The demands of the Freedom Caucus were, you're not going to work with Democrats or we're going to take you down. It wasn't how much immigration reform is, is good and how much gun control is bad and all that stuff. This was not around ideology. It was around a view of governing. I think that's the harder coalition to keep together. That happens to be a Republican coalition right now. Anthony, uh, same question. Exactly. I wanted to take a stab at that same question. Mm-hmm. I think there's I think there's a, a difference. You know, Democrats, you know, you you may believe in single payer health care like I did or Obamacare, which is a commercial based health care system. But at the end of the day, you believe. Democrats have this notion of progressivity, of making progress by having legislation, of taking half a loaf. On the Republican side, you have people who want to blow up the bakery and burn it to the ground. I mean, it, 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 we don't have that 
element, that nihilistic element about governing itself within our party. So when when faced with the the question, does does Bernie Sanders rally around a transportation bill or around a stimulus bill that includes concessions to Joe Manchin? The answer is yes, he does, because he recognizes he's getting a whole bunch of other things that he cares about. It doesn't go as far as he would like. The, the analogy on the other side is that there are many, many Republican, many members of this Freedom Caucus and the old Tea Party wing of the party who believe that legislating in and of itself and programs uh, to solve problems in and of themselves are the vice. And, and, and it's a very different thing. I know we have a tendency to say, well, both parties are the same. They have the exact same problems. We really don't. The Democratic Party definitely has. A, a more progressive, ambitious, call it whatever. Some people would call it a socialist wing. But th- those people are also half a loaf people. They, they, they're not going to vote no if they're getting some progress. Understood. Uh, let me also uh, pick your brain, Anthony, on an issue that uh, David Jolly raised earlier, which is the role that uh, gerrymandering, closed primaries and so forth have in uh, building more extremely ideological members of Congress. You know, I took note of the 20 House members that wouldn't vote for McCarthy and 14 of them. And this came as a little bit of a surprise to me. 14 of them are from states that let independents vote in Republican primaries. So it's not as if uh, all of a sudden all you have to do is allow independents to vote in primaries and it it produces more moderate compromise elected officials. What role do you think uh, electoral reform could play in uh, obviating some of the polarization that we're seeing in Congress and in the country at large? Yeah, I agree with Congressman Jolly. It's the Rosetta Stone that solves a lot of our problems. I mean, if it, it, the the fact is that so many of of these districts are so pre- precisely drawn to make sure that one party or another wins it, then it becomes you only are concerned about being conservative enough or mm-hmm. liberal enough. Um, you know, I represented a district in Brooklyn and Queens that was fairly conservative, places like Glendale and Ozone Park and Rockaway and, and Sheepshead Bay. These are places that are all represented by Republican city council members. I think that, that I, you know, I'm not as much of a fan of open um, of open primaries and open elections as you are. But I think that gerrymandering has a lot to do with it. The bottom line has to be if, you know, I, be, you know, I believe that if every district was drawn square, just, you know, whatever might fall in that district, 750,000, the same old cookie cutter everywhere, you'd have um, we would all be better members of Congress. You know, I I was I was in New York City. I had one of the whitest districts around, even though I had the most I was of most diverse city in, in the country. And that that didn't benefit me. It didn't benefit my my neighbor in Congress members who, who, who didn't have as much diversity in their district. I think that gerrymandering is at the source of so many of these problems. And uh, it's uh, it's difficult to see much progress being made on that, David. It seems like uh, whether it's your state of Florida where Republicans try to do the gerrymander or uh, states like New York where but for the courts, Democrats try to do a gerrymander. It doesn't seem like whoever's in part in power in any of these states is eager to make any progress on that front. Yeah, so a couple of forcing functions here. First, the jurisprudence of gerrymandering from the Supreme Court on down largely says it's a political question that the courts are going to stay out of unless there's a violation of civil rights, right? How are we adjusting majority-minority districts 
and including representation of, of all demographics. But shy of call it a voting rights, civil rights violation by the legislature, you then have to rely on citizen-led reforms. And that's only allowed in, I think, about 32 states. So take the other 18 states off the table because basically incumbents would have to pass maps that work against incumbency, and they're never going to do that. But you are seeing success in those other states. It is one reason that I'm no longer in Congress was in three years I had, I think, four different districts. And it was largely led by a voter initiative to try to create geographically compact districts. Now, once that was achieved, the irony was the four moderate members of the Florida delegation were tossed out. Myself, Gwen Graham, uh, Patrick Murphy, and the Ileana ross Layton and Carlos Corbello seat. So the, the fairness question, how do we draw them? Is it a box like Congressman Weiner says? Is it geography as a test? I like the idea of uh, competitive districts, right, where you have to compete uh, for your seat every two years, whatever that looks like. Voters are allowed to draw that under under the court's current guidance, but it takes voters to successfully lead a referendum in their state, and that is just an enormous hurdle in virtually every state. All right, we're going to take one. Well, we, 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 we did, Frank, let me just make one mm-hmm. final point on that. We did, we did it in New York. We did it in 2015. We passed this constitutional amendment requiring nonpartisan elections, and that's uh, nonpartisan drawing of elections. And that's what wound up tripping up the Democrats and arguably giving the House to the Republicans. Well, uh, you know, and again, as, as a lifelong independent, I'll point out that that uh, and I voted for that amendment, but it was bipartisan, uh, not nonpartisan. And, uh, you know, who could have foreseen that when you take a bunch of appointees, Republican and Democratic appointees, and ask them to draw the lines, shockingly, they won't be able to come up with a consensus <laughs> on what the lines look like. So there is a big difference between nonpartisan uh, districting and, and bipartisan. But I have to take one quick break. If you guys are willing to stick around a few more minutes, I have to ask you about uh, where we're headed in terms of George Santos and uh, where we're going with respect to the latest uh, revelations in terms of Joe Biden. David Jolly is here. Anthony Weiner is here. Uh, we'll take your calls. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the Yardbirds featuring Jeff Beck, who unfortunately yesterday passed away at the age of 78. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour of a very late night for both uh, former Congressman Anthony Weiner and former Congressman David Jolly. But we're enjoying uh, picking their brain and uh, in, indulging in some of their experience and their perspective, having spent a lot of time in Washington over the years. Uh, a lot of the talk in Washington and in New York these days uh, surrounds Congressman George Santos. And now uh, Republicans seem as eager as possible, at least here in New York, 
to have George Santos go away. Here was Al D'Amato on the uh, Cats at Night show talking about the need for George Santos to resign and the fact that uh, Nassau County Republicans are calling on Santos to go. This guy is a disgrace. He is in, he just in, incredible. I cannot believe it. And I have to tell you that the sooner he's going to be indicted and he's going to be convicted and on, on the financial fraud. Anybody who would lie like he is about his high school, about his college, about his jobs, etc. You don't think he lied about the campaign finances and all of a sudden they find seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and all of a sudden he goes from poverty to having money. Believe me, he's going to prison. Anthony Weiner, I'll begin with you. Uh, one, because it could be argued that you lost your congressional seat for for lying. Uh, but also, as we're sitting here over the last hour, one of the cable news networks, when they were doing this story and comparing uh, similar historical um, analogies, they played a speech of you very heated on the floor of the House and then uh, drew the comparison to George Santos. Well, what do you think about what uh, his hometown Republican Party is doing here? And uh, do you think he will end up uh, heeding the calls from these Nassau County Republican leaders to resign? McCarthy so far has said he was elected and he's not going to take any steps to get rid of him. Yeah, there there are a lot of similarities. I mean, I I resigned ultimately because I lied. And what led me down that path is just it became clear to me that the the weight of the investigations themselves, the ethics investigation, I didn't have any allegations of financial impropriety, and even the ethics investigation, what I had done had nothing to do with my official job, but just the idea that I have to defend it. I'd have to raise a bunch of money. I'd have to hire lawyers and the like, and at the same time, I, I wanted to protect my family from going through this. You know, I I think that, that that's, that's a lot. I think – and it, it – I mean, I, I have said this on my show. Something's going on with Mr. Santos. I think he's dealing with some some very deep-seated problems that he's going to have to manage. But putting that aside, that human element to this, you know, the, the, the there is a way that just the, being investigated and the weight of having the, the approbation and just it, it wears on you. I think the Nassau Republicans came to the conclusion, if we can get to the brass tacks of it, they had a better chance of winning a special election than they did defending this seat in 2024. So they want to take the Band-Aid off and do it as quickly as possible. On the other hand, Santos represents, what, 20, 25 percent of, of McCarthy's majority right now. <laughs> so I can understand why McCarthy is is defending him. But it is kind of an untenable, an untenable situation. The big winner of that long endurathon that we went through to, to name McCarthy speaker was arguably Santos. I mean, he, the, all of the attention that entire week would have been on this one relatively obscure member of Congress, and that wouldn't have been good for the Republicans. I, I mean, it, it's hard to it's hard to say on the financial stuff. I should, you know, I, I you know, Senator Senator D'Amato sometimes gets out over his skis a little bit. We don't know if he's going to be indicted or convicted. But that's one other element of this that could linger on for a while. You know, they, in these types of things, you want to know right, what shoe's going to drop next. 
with Mr. Santos, it seems to be every every two days we're learning about another element of, of his background that was fraudulent. Uh, David, one of the new things that we've learned about George Santos is that an aide to George Santos actually was impersonating a chief aide to uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy in terms of uh, a fundraising initiative for uh, Santos's campaign. Does the narrowness of the Republican majority here make it unlikely that McCarthy is going to, say, refer this to the House Ethics Committee? Yeah, look, first of all, let's call a spade a spade. McCarthy and all these Republicans waited until they secured Santos' speakership vote and got McCarthy elected before any of them started speaking out this week. So there is a level of professional hypocrisy there. It's no surprise, right? This is politics, but let's call it like it is. Um, I Look, I I think either Congressman Weiner or D'Amato, whomever said it, is right. It will take an indictment and conviction probably to have him thrown out of the House. The House historically has always deferred to home state voters and district voters to say, look, who are we to say that voters didn't know that he was lying to them when they elected him? The House doesn't substitute its judgment for the judgment of voters. But if someone is indicted, they quickly get removed from committees. And if they get convicted, if they don't resign by then, they get expelled. The only other scenario where he leaves is, as Congressman Weiner said, if the weight of it just gets to be too much for him personally. But look, Santos has shown himself to be a fairly audacious individual. I I think he has indicated he wants to try to follow the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates strategy, which is I'm the victim. I'm getting piled on by Democrats. And because I'm a victim, I need you to help fight for my survival. I just don't think he has enough currency or narrative to win that successfully like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others have. I, I also do wonder if uh, he's tr- trying to take a uh, a page from the former governor of uh, of Virginia um, who was looked like he was on the ropes. There was a lot of pressure for him to resign, Ralph Northam. And uh, all of a sudden he just stuck it out and the media moved on to another shiny object. They wasn't they didn't obsess over him and he was able to finish his four year term and, and move on. Uh, do you think that the, the spotlight of the media will eventually move on from from Santos and he'll be able to kind of keep his head down the way the state senator from uh, Brooklyn, Salazar, was able to do when a lot of her uh, past kind of caught up with her? You don't hear about that anymore. She just a regular member of the of the state senate here in new york what, what do you think anthony i think that the, the, there's an important difference you know with the northrop example there was a beginning middle and an end to what was going to come out it was just some, a picture or two that came out there was also some some political reasons why you know getting rid of him was was problematic because the next guy wasn't that much better etc the thing about the Santos, the Santos thing is you've got a combination of three things. One, you've got Santos. You still have more things coming out about him. Two, you have an ethics investigation. And I don't know if Congressman Jolly had this, the same uh, take on the ethics committee. It's a 50-50 committee. They, they're going to re- make a report. They're, gonna, they're having an investigation. They're going to make a report. That's going to linger on for a while. And the third variable is there's going to be news that's going to get made around the financial element to this. Anytime you write documents, um, you know, you sign documents as a candidate or as an elected official that turn out not to be true, that could create legal problems. So there's just a lot of like burning embers here that could keep on going for a while. But let's but even if we if if he does stick around, you know, the people of the third districts are not going to be particularly well represented. 
I, 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 you know, I will eat this phone if he's get reelected in 2024. So, um, I, I, you know, and, uh, the, the, uh, another interesting dichotomy here is that Nancy Pelosi never said to me, Anthony, resign. But what she did say to me, she says, listen, this is the impact that what is going on with you is having on your colleagues, on your friends, on the institution that you love and respect. It's the impact it's having on your friend, on your friends and family. You know, she understood. I mean, she had a certain fidelity to kind of getting things done. McCarthy has fidelity to keeping his speakership. So that does provide a very important safety net underneath Santos. But as Congressman Jolly said, and I agree, he just doesn't he, – he, it's very hard to rally around this guy, even for the most steadfast Republicans. Uh, let me end with this, just because it has gotten so much attention over the last 48 hours. Uh, the story of the uh, Joe Biden classified documents. Uh, there was uh, additional documents discovered yesterday, and uh, it's looking like there's going to be a, uh, a similar special counsel investigating the handling of the Biden documents uh, in light of the uh, Trump Mar-a-Lago situation. Uh, David Jolly, where do you see this Biden investigation going? And what does that do to the Trump Mar-a-Lago investigation, as far as you could tell? Yeah, look, a, a bad look for for Joe Biden. Certainly, I think you're seeing Democrats make the case today that Joe Biden's been acting in good faith, finding the material and turning it over. And Democrats are making the case that Donald Trump was acting in bad faith, hiding the documents, moving the documents, saying to the court he had produced them when he hadn't. I don't know how much longer that contrast can hold. I was listening over on Fox News tonight. Former Speaker Newt Gingrich was already making the case <clears throat> that this is this goes much deeper to China funding the University of Penn Institute that bears Biden's name and Biden having these documents. What what I think the big question is, do House Republicans add this to the list of investigations, but can they do so with a straight face investigating only Biden and not Trump. And then the same question of DOJ. If you're investigating Trump now, you at least have to acknowledge that this has to be looked at. Ultimately, the facts are going to bear out what they are, and we can all make a judgment in the end. Uh, Anthony, what do you think? Politically, what is the implication of this Biden issue? Politically, it's, look, it's, it's, gives people who want to say everyone does the same things the same way in this space and that our guy is being persecuted. And it, look, it's it's not helpful. It, it, you know, I already hear it on our station, people saying, you see, Biden is just as bad as Trump. And we're not good as a news media, as a body politic, as a, as a, as a, as a society that talks about issues of separating wheat from the chaff sometimes. I think it's looking very different if you look at all the facts line by line and you do the comparative between between Biden and Trump. But most voters are not going to do that. And I think it, it, it just makes it gives us another issue for us to be at each other's throat about saying the other guy's worse. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it's a kind of the, you know, the oh, but about her emails is kind of like this has become back to the thing that we are we seem to be unable to say, yes, but there are differences of degrees and there are nuances. We are not. We are not a, a country that's very good at nuance right now, and this isn't going to help. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I uh, very much enjoy talking to both of you, because especially now that neither of you are in Congress, uh, you seem to be very able to uh, call balls and strikes and give analysis that's uh, critical or laudatory of both sides. Uh, gentlemen, I know I kept both of you up uh, way past your bedtime today. I appreciate the time. I hope we can do this again in the future. 
Hey, good to be with you guys. Uh, David Thank Jolly and Anthony Weiner. You can check out Anthony Weiner's podcast at uh, wabcradio.com. You can also hear him every Saturday afternoon from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. Got our own phone number working again. 800-848-9222. Big thank you to Dan Herschel for his work and his role in getting the phones working again. I saw him uh, here first thing when I got in today and last thing when I left yesterday. So he's been working hard to make sure the phones are working again and make sure Verizon has gotten its act together. Until next hour, uh, in the words of the great Bob Barker, uh, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.